A little bit of pre-episode housekeeping. I've started live streaming on YouTube just for giggles. On Wednesday nights, I took to the video waves to talk about my experience at the Kentucky Bourbon Festival. And if you haven't a chance, go back and listen to that one. Um, this podcast releases on a bi-weekly or, or bi-monthly or whichever one is right there. I never can remember if it's bi-weekly or bi-monthly. It's every two weeks. Um, I think I'm going to shift to on the weeks that I don't release an episode, I'll do a YouTube live that is going to be more conversational. If you're interested in joining me for any of those, please hit me up. We can do some StreamYard or something, and you can come on and we can have that conversation uh, and talk about things. I have some topics, and we'll talk about those at the end of this episode of the topics that I already have. And maybe you have something that you want to talk about as well. Um, I have enough to get me through a couple of months this way. It could be real topics. It could just be some insane rambling. Um, right now, it appears that Wednesday nights around 9 p.m. Central is going to be my go-to time for this, but I'm very wide open to suggestion. Uh, it also might be a great time to go through the tasting the episodes. I have been looking for people to join me to taste through some of the bottles that I have talked about in the previous 20 episodes. So there's about two or three brands per episode. Uh, have probably enough things to share samples for probably 90% of those. So if there's an episode that you've heard or you want to go back and look through them, you identify, hey, I'd like to taste this. Um, if you don't mind doing it on air and absolutely reach out to me, I'll send you some samples. We'll hop on a link one night and just kind of talk through it. And um, You don't necessarily have to have listened to the episode. We can talk about it all over again. I can kind of give you the, the high level of it. Um, going through two or three or one or whatever. Um, just kind of run back through it and see what you've got. And if you have anything, you know, obviously hit me up. You can leave a comment here on YouTube. You can go to my website at embellishpod.com. Um, Instagram, you know, email address, embellishpod at gmail.com. All of those things. You should be able to find me. Um, I'm going to try to do an audio and video recording of each episode so I can cut out an audio version for mobile listeners and a video version for the folks that are like me and they just let... Um, YouTube run while they're at work. And so I might be biting off a bit much to swallow in this, but we'll run it until I can't run it anymore, and then I'll stop and do something different. Growing up in, growing up in Kentucky, there's only one type of whiskey, and it has an E in it, unless your name is Maker's Mark. And it has a legal definition because it is bourbon. And all bourbon is whiskey, but not all whiskey is bourbon. And that's legally the truth, but it wasn't always. Standards of identity in the United States ensure that this particular appellation of whiskey is relatively similar no matter what you buy. It also ensures that bad actors can't come into play and color some pure grain alcohol and add some flavor to it and call it bourbon. It would be nice to say that this is a new concept that we developed here, but it's not really the case. And maybe we formalized the identity idea from a legal standpoint, um, but in the past it's been a standard. Uh, once I got a little older, I learned about rye, which could be a sibling to the bourbon uh, version of whiskey. But then there's scotch, and scotch is like a third cousin twice removed to early American whiskey concepts. It similarly has standards of identity, ensuring production methodologies that became formalized sometime in the 80s, and then they revisited it in the mid-2000s. There are a host of other whiskey versions, some regulated and some not yet that they are left out there for the rest of us to explore. Today's episode is going to be an exercise in exploring some of these spirits. Last week we talked about whiskey that wasn't bourbon, and we're going to do that yet again today. Welcome to the Embellish Podcast, where we like to talk about stories. 
We like to explore how embellishment makes a story better, how it allows us to connect more deeply with both the person telling the story and the subject of the story. Together, we will explore people, products, and places that have a story to tell. We'll navigate through the truths, half-truths, and outright lies and decide if the truthiness even matters. During the pandemic, like many other folks, I began quarantine spending, increasing my collection of bourbon, home office supplies, mail order, toilet paper, air filters, bulk flour, you name it, Amazon drivers were delivering it here. At some point, I identified that I needed to differentiate my whiskey collection a little bit, decided to buy some scotch and Japanese whiskey. I didn't know anything about Japanese whiskey, but I poked around the internet for about seven minutes and immediately became an expert in Japanese whiskey. Luckily, around the same time, standards of identity were being implemented to what Japanese whiskey means. I'd heard the name Nika in a ton of blogs and podcasts, so it must be at bare minimum a fair offering of the spirit, and when I looked on the internet, I came across Nika coffee grain whiskey. I knew about coffee stills and what they do for distillation, but I didn't immediately click in my brain that the coffee still and the coffee grain whiskey were related. Its name sounded more like a coffee or of the hot beverage type, and I needed something that was not American and not Scotch, and it wasn't too expensive. Very not like me, I just made a blind purchase. After the fact, I poked around and I figured out what Nika standard offerings are, and they're probably similar to a Jim Beam white label of the Japanese whiskey world. Historical John was pretty spot on in finding a fair offering to put on my shelf to represent a standard of Japanese whiskey. Nika has been around since the 40s and is largely a Japanese whiskey, an attempt to recreate Scotch whiskey. So much so that the founder of the distillery company, so much so that the founder of the distillery company that produces Nika traveled to Scotland to learn the process of distilling in the early 1900s. These early attempts to create a clone of Scotch have been molded over time to adopt some sense of locality. Mizunara oak, regional climate, and a focus on the refinement of a product over consistency of flavor are all areas to help somewhat differentiate scotch from Japanese whiskey. Beyond those with some degree of regulatory compliance, there is a whole new world of whiskey occurring right now too. It's even called New World Whiskey without the E. The idea of New World Whiskey is whiskey that is produced anywhere except for Scotland, Ireland, Canada, USA, and now Japan, or one that is not traditionally associated with the country that it is made in. This is the Wild West of whiskey right now. New nations are entering into the fray with offerings that are potentially unique to their particular region. A couple of months ago, I got the opportunity to participate in a virtual tasting of one of these whiskeys of the New World. On the same night, I unexpectedly had a friend invite me over to do a scotch tasting, and since I was culturally obliged to attend, I missed out on most of the tasting event. Luckily, I got a second chance to taste through the spirits from this distillery. If you've never heard of Australian whiskey, don't be so surprised. Most of us haven't. Luckily, Jake from Keen the Lake Podcast is a brand representative for Starwood Whiskey, and I got a chance to taste their particular expressions. What I know about Australia is largely relegated to either the crocodile hunter or the fact that every animal on the continent is trying to kill you. I've been blessed with friends from around the world over the years, but I've never had the opportunity to truly get to know an Australian. 
Similar to the whiskey movement in the United States, they take pride in sourcing their ingredients from within a day's drive radius. And aging, well, it's drastically different in Australia. Climate and region lead to a significantly shorter aging times. And I don't even know if aging times are appropriate there. Maybe it's somewhat similar to Texas. The heat leads to an incredible liquid loss and the coloration of the spirit is drastically different in a much shorter time frame. Starward focuses on aging their whiskey in pre-used barrels. Most of their expressions are aged in X-Red wine casks and boast flavor profiles similar to that of single malt whiskey. One of their standard expressions, the Solera, and as the name would indicate, it does use the Solera process. If you are unfamiliar with this process, you can run back an episode or two and discover more about that, but the idea is to lend some degree of consistency from batch to batch by using some portion of the liquid that is set back. But that's not the entire story. They also age in a para barrels. Jake walked us through the tasting and I learned about a para. A para is an Australian fortified wine that is similar to sherry. Because of the standards of identity, sherry, unless the identity sherry, unless it is made in a specific reason, can't be called sherry. Secondarily to that, anything aged in Australia is going to be significantly different than sherry because sherry casks are generally coming from France. France's climate and Australia's climate couldn't be farther apart. This wine, however, is made just down the road from Star Wars Distillery. While the ingredients in the process similarly match that of scotch, the aging, to me, makes a significant difference in the final product. The second, what might be considered standard offering, is called Nova. This offering is similar to the former, except it's using a Shiraz, Cab, and Pinot Noir barrels to age in. Barrels are still sourced locally, and most times still carry some degree of moisture from the winery. That's fresh. Characteristics of the Shiraz and the Pinot are the interesting points here for me. While none of that may seem groundbreaking, let's talk about aging whiskey in ginger beer casks. During the tasting, Jake shared with me a tasting of a ginger beer cask aged Australian whiskey. Getting a sip of this was like tasting an Ale 8-1, and if you haven't been to this region, you might not understand that reference, but there's a significant ginger and effervescence that reminds me of carbonation on a single sip. An Ale 8-1 is a carbonated ginger drink that is very popular around Lexington, Kentucky. The fact that they even tossed some distillate in a ginger beer cask proves they are interested in doing some new and unique things. Just now reaching Western culture, if what I experience is any indicator of the future for the brand here in the U.S., there is a significant growth opportunity. Australian whiskey has no standards of identity yet, but considering the name and what's happening in whiskey, you can safely assume that whatever has the label on it is relatively specific to Australia. Still hanging in there, Cliff. Thank you. Another area that is producing whiskey without identity standards is Taiwan. Taiwan is the third largest consumer of malt whiskey, and considering its size, it might be a little surprising. With such a large market, you'd expect them to develop their own flavor profiles based on their culture. Trying to understand Taiwan is made even more difficult when you understand some of the strife surrounding who controls the country and its proximity to People's Republic of China. Those particular types of nations deal with ownership of products incredibly different than what we're used to in the Western world, and until the early 2000s, the government held a monopoly on the right to produce alcohol. 
Since then, there's been a gold rush of productivity happening on the whiskey front. Kavalon has been producing top quality spirits within 15 years. Their production was good enough that it was eclipsing the accolades of Scotch and English whiskey. Whiskey standards that had been in production for hundreds of years were being outclassed by a freshman offering. Given its youth, there's no standard of identity, but its aging is significantly faster considering its subtropical climate. One thing that stands out to me about Kavalon is during the early years of production, they purchased large German stills with the intent to expand their production exponentially. After a few years of their experimentation with these larger stills, they retired them because the alcohol it produced was too processed. Many distilleries make decisions based on efficiencies in creating more product to sell. Very few lack the discipline to rein those ambitions back in when the final product suffers from production growth. Not one for waste, those giant German stills were repurposed to create gin using Taiwanese herbs, spices, and botanicals. Similar to how bourbon in Kentucky makes a big deal on limestone water, Kavalon boasts spring water from snow runoff from a nearby mountain. Whether it makes a positive impact or not, it certainly provides a great optic for what this whiskey represents. Craftsmanship, attention to detail, and refining the purity of the final product are all important. A couple of months ago, I was privileged enough to share my first taste of Kavalon with a great friend, and I know I'll never be able to recreate that particular experience because of the uniqueness of the company and the uniqueness of the bottle. It opened my eyes to the possibilities of world whiskey. I know there are a ton of different versions of whiskey in the world, but being landlocked in the heartland of the United States creates a pretty generic tapestry of the products that are available to me. I'm starting to look at things like craft distilling with a different vision because domestically, it's the heartbeat of the future, the whiskey, United States. In a corollary fashion, I'm now looking into New World whiskey, not the big versions like Irish, Scotch, or English whiskey. But while all of those have a place on every connoisseur's shelf, trying to break new ground, it seems like the right place would be to look at regional whiskeys that are without a standard or identity, or those that have recently gained that notoriety, like Japanese whiskey. A month or two ago, my friends over at Chill Filtered Podcast tried Floki, an Icelandic whiskey that has a unique smoking methodology. To find out what that is, I'll refer you back to their podcast, but while I may not be racing out to stock my shelf with that spirit, it's interesting to see what different cultures do with a similar distilled spirit process to create their own unique results. None of this will ever replace my ingrained love of Kentucky's favorite spirit, but this wayfaring exploration of distilled spirits seems more American than just about anything. Feeling the urge to explore just a little bit further. I'll never forget whenever I was a child, my cousins and I used to spend a great deal of time playing in the woods. We were exploring. On more than one occasion, I found myself trying to urge our group on because something exciting might be just over the next hill or around the next corner. It might be a part of my identity. So this is your chance to join me on this journey. Last Wednesday night, I went live on YouTube to share about my experience at the Kentucky Bourbon Festival. Give that a listen if you are interested. Beyond that, I'm going to continue running a YouTube live every Wednesday that my calendar allows for. Some weeks, I'll... I'll talk about a hot take type topic and others I might just taste through some of the brands that I've talked about in several of my episodes. If you are interested in participating in that, you can reach me at Instagram, on my website at embellishpod.com, on YouTube, um, embellishpod at gmail.com. 
Thanks for listening to the Embellish Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe. Check out our website at embellishpod.com and follow us on social media at Instagram and Twitter to keep up with what we have going on. If you have an idea about a story we should talk about, send it to us at embellishpod at gmail.com. And remember, whether famous or infamous, a good story mixed with a touch of embellishment makes the food you ate, the drink you drank, and the places you visited just a little more memorable.